you join me please in praying for God's help again? Father, how thankful we are for the promises. They are rich, they are full, they are free, and they are a mighty yes in Jesus. There's not one of your promises that has or will fail. Oh, how much we need that truth to live in our souls because so often we are people who doubt, who fear, who experience things that seem to run counter to the promises. And we readily confess, God, that the circumstances of life often speak a louder message to us and over our lives than your word itself. Would you come today through the power of your word, by the presence of your Holy Spirit, and cause your promises to live in our hearts in such a real way that there's an expulsive result. Let your promises take up residence in our hearts and expel the fear and the doubt and the turmoil and the anguish, the guilt, and let your promises have dominion within us. So many needs here. Oh, Lord God, if, if every one of us were to take just even three minutes and say, here are the greatest needs of my soul right now, as we worked our way around the room, it would become overwhelming to hear. But it's not overwhelming to you. And you have said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. So we're coming. We're coming out of our weakness and fatigue and fear and doubt, and we're asking you to be faithful and true to your part of that promise that you would give rest, give hope, give peace. Open your word to us. Spirit of God, come and help us. You are the great teacher, and I ask for assistance that I'd just be a faithful messenger speaking the things that you desire to be spoken here today, not out of my own wisdom or experience, but only through the the power of the Spirit, the authority of your Word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the many things that separates human beings from the rest of the universe, but in particular other life forms like your dog or your cat uh, or monkeys or hyenas is our capacity to put important thoughts together and communicate them, and in particular to actually put important thoughts into poetry. And then sometimes we add tunes to the poetry and we come up with great music. Some of it is very simple. One voice singing without any accompaniment can be a powerful instrument of those thoughts, that poetry, that music. Sometimes they're so complex, both the texts and the tunes, that there needs to be rehearsal time over weeks, if not months. And those complicated arrangements not only require rehearsal, but trained musicians, whether it be vocalists or members of an orchestra, and all those rehearsals culminate in a powerful performance. And though I know sometimes we refer to bird song, it's still not the same as human song, is it? And some of the most powerful 
experiences you have had in your life have come in the form of poetry or music. Some of you connect particular songs with particular moments in life that were very significant. And that's good and right. The best music is not only what comes from the heart, but what also expresses truth. Truth that is powerful. Truth that is simple and clear and personal. And the songs and hymns, when we think in terms of church music, the songs and hymns that stand the test of time seem to do all of these things really well. It's why for over 500 years the church has been singing songs like, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though most of us are not German speakers by birth, we are glad that somebody took the time and effort to translate that great text by Martin Luther very carefully so that we could sing it in English. And the church will probably be singing that hymn until Jesus comes because both the poetry and the tune come together in a powerful expression of faith. Well, this should not surprise us at all because the Bible is full of great poetry and great songs. I've mentioned before that Adam's first response to Eve after God created her and brought him to the man, when he sees her for the first time, he begins to speak poetry. That's just the first of nearly 200 poems in the Bible. Miriam leads Israel in a triumph song after God crushes the Egyptians. Moses sings his victory song of praise in Exodus 15. When God answers Hannah's prayers for a son, prayers that she prayed for years out of the anguish of her soul, she praises him with a song. It's recorded in 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. David, Solomon, Asaph, the sons of Korah, are among those who wrote psalms or poems, if you will, and they are collected into the book of Psalms, 150 of them that give us texts. And although the tunes haven't been preserved for us, they were set to music and the people of God sang those in praise, uh, sometimes in lament, many different things that were being accomplished. There's an entire book in the Old Testament, the Song of Solomon. It's one poem. And one author describes it as love poetry, and certainly it is, but it's not simply of the king's romance with the Shunammite woman, but of God's covenantal love and faithfulness to his people. The apostles include what we believe to be several early hymns. They're found in places like Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, 1 Timothy 3, 16, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, and 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. And the last book of the Bible the revelation of Jesus Christ, and I like to use that as the full title, has no less than 11 songs of praise and worship to our God and Christ. So God loves poetry. It was originally his idea, and he is the greatest poet in the universe and always will be. And I know some of you say, I'm not a a literary type, and poetry was never my thing. Well, I'm just going to pray that God will sanctify you, make you more like him, Just leaving that there. Some of you can pray about that. But here in the text before us in Luke 1 is what we have come to refer to as the Magnificat. That's just the Latin word for what Mary is doing here, magnifying the Lord and praising Him. But it's Mary's poem of praise. It's the response of her soul upon hearing from the archangel Gabriel that she will be the virgin mother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the Spirit-inspired response of her soul 
to the promises of God as she not only hears that they will be brought to pass, but realizes she's in the middle of the fulfillment of those promises. You know, if you pause for another moment and think about the three women of the nativity that we've looked at, not one of them, not one of them would be a woman that I think we would pick and say, oh, if God's going to fulfill a promise, it should be through her or with her. Elizabeth, old, a nice woman, but old, childless, she has nothing to offer. Anna, also old, widow lady living and serving in the context of a temple that, by and large, was corrupted in its practice, though she was a faithful one there. And then Mary, who, as we'll see in just a moment, a young teenage woman from an out-of-the-way place, engaged to a man who's just a day laborer. I mean, there's nothing impressive about her background or her present position that would make all of us sit up and take notice and say, oh, God should pick her. But isn't that God's way? That in his grace, as Paul writes in Corinthians, he chooses the nothings of the world to bring to nothing the things or people that are. He loves to pull down the proud ones and exalt in places of honor the humble ones. And that's exactly what he's going to do with Mary. Now, If your Bible's open to Luke 1, I want you to find verse 26. I'm going to read a little longer portion of the scriptures, but this will be helpful for us, and and I think it is not only helpful but appropriate. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And now our text will hold for just a moment. 
Let me set this up for you and just note a few things about her. First of all, this is uh, a young woman from Nazareth. I don't know if you are familiar with the Gospel of John, but in chapter 1, as Jesus is calling his disciples and some of them begin to tell others, uh, one of those disciples who is called is a little surprised that apparently the Messiah has come out of Nazareth. And he even says in John 1.46, it's Nathaniel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's the town that nobody wanted to be from. It's just small. It's unimpressive. It wasn't a place that you would go to to get a great education. It wasn't a place where there was thriving economic opportunity. It was just a very small and insignificant place, and that's where Mary comes from. Another thing from the text is that we realize she is an ordinary young woman, most likely a teenager, and as the text has told us, betrothed to a carpenter. Now, we know from some of the other genealogies that he is a descendant of David and as a descendant of David actually has a right to claim the throne of David, but there doesn't seem to be any of that on his radar, no opportunity, let alone desire at this particular point because he's just in an ordinary trade that will be useful day to day, but nobody's knocking on Joseph's doorstep to say, hey, could you lead a revolt against the Romans? I mean, you are the son of David. You are an heir to David's throne. Would, would, would you be strong enough and passionate enough to raise up a revolt and, and just establish the throne of David once again. So she's engaged to a man who really has no influence in his day. As a little sidebar, John 19 verse 25 mentions a sister of Mary's. It doesn't name her, so we know she had at least one sibling. There's just not a lot about her life that is impressive. And the text does note that she's a young virgin. She's kept herself pure. That's noteworthy. Now, Gabriel says in the opening chapter, though, that you are highly favored of God. She's not bringing an impressive resume to the gospel story at this particular point. But she praises God in an extraordinary way. So let's continue our reading here and just put in context that this is a teenager who's just heard the message of God, now experienced some things as she engages with her relative Elizabeth and recognizes not only that God is fulfilling his word in the life of Elizabeth, but also coming to terms with what it really means that she will be the mother of Messiah. And so she says, verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Remember, this is a poem. And so as we work our way through this passage, I want you to think of it as the poem of her soul. First of all, there's poetry here of God's blessing. God shows his personal attention to Mary. And she's amazed by this. Look at verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. This, this is reason for her to say, I, I magnify him. That is, I, I praise him in terms of his greatness. My soul uh, and is magnifying the Lord, my spirit rejoicing in him. And she uses a, a strong word for rejoicing. It's used in other places to describe leaping for, for joy, showing your joy by, by dancing, as it were. It's an ecstatic overflow of emotion. 
But it's God's personal attention to her that moves her in that way. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She knows her low status. That's what the humble estate refers to. And then did you notice at the end of that verse, his servant. And she uses terminology there to describe a a household servant, even a slave. This is a young woman who actually has a right assessment of self. We live in a day and age that says things like this. You know, you can't really love other people until you've learned to love yourself. Oh, you know, that's devastating in a couple of ways. Truth be told, and any of you who have a little one in your home, was your child born with a humble spirit or were they born self-centered? They think the whole world rotates around them, don't they? And actually what Jesus says is, The second command, love others, he actually says, love others as you already love yourself. You and I don't actually have a self-esteem problem in the way the world would say. We actually love ourselves too much. That's what sets us up for a lot of the conflict and and problems and turmoil we have relationally. I know some of you are like, oh, but you don't know the background I came from. that, That would be another discussion. But I've been at this long enough, and I've lived with myself long enough, and pastoral ministry works with people. We, we don't have a self-esteem issue. We don't have a healthy assessment of how bad we are and how low our estate is, in particular because of what sin has done in the world. But here is a woman who does not overly estimate her value. She seems to have it in proper perspective and recognizes I'm a person of low estate. And at best, I'm, I'm just a slave girl to God most high. But God has taken notice of me. That's what she's amazed by. I wonder if you are amazed that God would take notice of you. Some of you know exactly how Mary feels at this point. Maybe you were born in a less than desirable neighborhood. You didn't have a lot by way of material possessions. Your home was dysfunctional. Maybe your parents split up at an early age and and you just bounced back and forth and never knew the security of a whole and healthy family. Some of you are teenagers right now. You go to school with kids who seem to have everything they could want. Money, clothes, cars, opportunities. They're getting into schools that you say, I I just don't even stand a chance there. You're kind of like, if I can put it this way, a a Walmart kid living in an H&M world. And you even feel the humility of wearing clothes that are less than whatever the school standard is. Truth be told, you don't want your parents to drop you off right in front of the school because you're embarrassed by the car you drive. And when you get your license, your worst fear is that your parents are going to say, now you can drive yourself to school. you got to park that crate on the school lot. When I was a teenager, we we had uh, a couple of older cars 
and one of them was a four-door sedan. It was a Rambler Classic. Any of you know what a Rambler Classic would be? Yeah. And so I have three sisters. There were six of us, and we all went to school together in the morning, and even my mom and dad, and just, we, my dad actually was employed by a, a Christian college, and they had a elementary school and, and middle school and high school that went with it. So, I mean, we worked, we went to school, we even ate most of our meals there right on the campus. And so we'd go in the morning and we'd park. And we often would park right in front of some of the girls' dormitories before we'd go in and eat our, you know, breakfast and then and go off to school. And there was a point where that car, four doors, uh, only two of them worked. And these were bench seats. And it was humiliating to pull up in front of the, you know, girls' dorms and all kinds of students are going in, and the three people in the front bench seat would all scoot out on the passenger side, and the three of us in the back would all scoot out on you know, the left side of the car. And, you know, looking back on it, big whoop. But, you know, as a 12-year-old, oh, it was the height of humiliation. <laughs> Why can't we drive a car that actually has four doors that work? You know what's amazing? that the God of the universe would actually look upon any of us. Do you, like Mary, have a realistic understanding of who you really are? Some of you struggle even at that point of being anybody's servant, let alone God's. But you know, you think about the benefits of, of arranging your life under the all-powerful one. It relieves you of all kinds of responsibility. Because when you live for him and serve him, he's the one who sets the agenda. He's the one ultimately who has the responsibility to take care of his stuff, and that includes you. I'm just going to insert this in a very personal and practical way, but one of the things the Lord's really been working into my heart over this past year is that for a long, long time, I've lived more like an orphan than the son of God. Orphans have to figure it out, don't they? They got nobody to protect them, to care for them, to provide for them. You know the telltale sign that I live like an orphan? When my stuff, when my world begins to break down, whether it be my car or my health, financial type things or relational things, suddenly I feel all the pressure. I got to solve it. I got to resolve it. I got to provide for it. I got to make a way, come up with a scheme. And I'm just a nervous wreck. And God's been kindly but firmly showing me, really over a couple of years, you're my son. Stop acting as if I don't exist and as if you're an orphan. The God of heaven shows us personal attention. And it moved Mary, probably not just to recite poetry, but I kind of have the opinion there might have been song here. Second thing here, God grants a perpetual blessing to her. We won't spend much time here, but she says, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And we do, don't we? We love Mary. We share the joy. We're, we're in awe. We look forward to meeting her one day in heaven. And, and I think especially some of you ladies who've you've had that experience, that joy and even the hardship of carrying a baby in your womb, but I mean, you put her in a little different category, don't you? Like, what was it like to, you know, t 
touch your womb and think, the God of the universe, the God who made me, is here. Oh, it's a blessing that we, we couldn't even begin to measure. Let's press on here because there's actually really excellent things in store for us. Okay, so let's go back to verse 46. And, and now I actually want to look at some, some of the poetry of, of God's presence. But notice what she says about God because this, this is a young woman who knows God. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now let's look at several big categories, and I put all five of them up there. I, I didn't even read to the very end of this text, but in time we'll come there. So I just want to kind of hang this framework out there for you so you can start thinking in particular categories. And, and there are at least five significant points that she makes through this poem about God. You can see them all there. Now I want to go back individually and just spend a moment or two with each one thinking, working our way through it and saying, so what, what difference does this make for me? First of all, God is my Savior. He's my Deliverer the one who saves me from danger and destruction. And in particular, the danger and destruction that our sin, our sin, the sin of mankind, has brought into this world. Part of the Christmas narrative that we need to consider is what the angel told Joseph in a dream. Matthew 1, 21, where he said very simply that your wife will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, and then this is the name or the meaning of that name, he will save his people from their sins. So when Mary is magnifying God as her Savior, she's not simply talking about, yeah, he's getting me out of a little, you know, circumstantial bind at the moment or a little financial difficulty or maybe, you know, this man I'm engaged to will will become a really wildly successful carpenter and, you know, will live in my little dream home. No, she's looking beyond that to the fact that her sin has brought such devastation and destruction into her own life that she will perish without a Savior. But he's come. And you know, though Mary is a godly young woman, she is not sinless. And there have been some groups through the ages that have attached to her things that just are not true. A virgin? Yes. A sinless woman? No. She's in need of a Savior, just like you and I are in need of a Savior. And I think again, how does Jesus save us from our sins? There are three components to that that become apparent in the gospel. First, by his life. How does Jesus save us by his life? Well, he lived the perfect life of righteousness that God requires for all of us if we're going to enter his presence, but we could never live. And so he saves us as God gives his righteousness, imputes it as a specific term, to us. It's a gift. He credits us with that positive righteousness. That's the first way he saves us. Secondly, he saves us by his death. He dies as the substitute. He took the punishment for your sin and mine on himself. We earned it. We deserved it by our sin. But Jesus saves us by his perfect sacrifice. And then, you know, his resurrection is also important for your salvation. Paul connects it specifically to justification. It's the proof that by his life and his sacrificial death, when God raised him from the dead, he raised him, the scriptures say, for our justification. That's the proof that God can declare you to be righteous, free from your sin, on your way to heaven, secured forever. 
This is the Savior that she is magnifying. He's the mighty one. Look at verse 49. He who is mighty. It's a little more than an adjective. She actually, I believe, is using a title for God. It means the one who is able. Now, in the Old Testament, this attribute of God describes him as he fights for his people. Psalm 24, verse 8. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. This mighty one is described in Isaiah 9, 6, as, as we've read and sung several points through the service. But let me just remind you again, among the other titles and names that are used there, he is described as the mighty God, the able God. You don't want to serve a God who promises stuff that he can't fulfill. But as the mighty God, he is able to do everything that he has promised. The prophet Zephaniah uses this special title to encourage God's people to hope in the coming restoration despite the imminent exile and deportation. And that's the passage in Zephaniah 3, verse 17, that we have used and and seen already in the service. But let me take you there again. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one. And there, I think, is the specific title that was probably in Mary's heart as she sings this beautiful hymn or poem of praise. A mighty one who will save. And then listen to this. Although it's cause for her to rejoice and for you to rejoice, God himself rejoices over people like us with gladness. And what does he rejoice in? He rejoices in the salvation that he works, the transformation that's underway. But look at this. Here is God described as rejoicing over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt or literally whirl around over you with loud singing. That that is one of the most astonishing thoughts to me because, and it's right for us to think about God as high and holy and absolutely worthy of our awe and fear and our respect. And if you entered the, the courtroom of heaven, you would see something like Isaiah describes back in chapter six where the train of his robe fills the temple and the seraphim and other angelic creatures surround the throne and some of them cry day and night, holy, holy, holy. And the foundations of that temple throne room shake because of the praise that goes there. And yet God himself is described as rising from that majestic throne and in great joy and delight over sinners that he has redeemed, people like Mary who are humble of no significance, humanly speaking, but he actually takes such joy and delight in them that he begins to dance. And there's part of me that feels like, oh, he is too high and great and respectable to whirl about, but these are his words. When he saves, it not only produces joy For us, it produces joy in his own being. Mary says of this mighty one, he's done great things. That's terminology that speaks of important and surprising things. I wonder if you can look back and see any important or surprising things that God has done for you of late. Or even in your lifetime. I was meditating on this just a little bit, and what a blessed thought it was for me that God did, I think, a a surprising and mighty thing by moving our family to Utah. Five years ago, we we had no inkling, no desire. We weren't praying, we weren't looking, and even as I was thinking about this moment where I would share that with you, 
And now I can actually look at you all and say, this is a wonderful thing. Because so many of you have become dear to us and others of you are becoming dear to us. And I think this, this is a surprising and important thing. And that's just one thought that came into my head, even in my own little way of how I've experienced this very kind of thing, great things that the Mighty One has done. But you know the greatest thing I would tell you that the Mighty One has done for me? Saved me from my sins. Took a young, self-righteous, arrogant punk of a kid, brought me to the place where I said, I'm really far worse than I ever want to admit. And without you, God, I'll be lost forever. Have mercy. And he did. He's able to do that because he is the mighty one. Then she goes on to say he's the holy one. Holy is his name. Oh, there's so many references I'd like to go to right now. I already alluded to Isaiah 6. Let me go back to Isaiah, though. Isaiah 57 Verse 15, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, we know that, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Our worship team included this in that portion at the opening reading of, of I think it was four different scriptures. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 15, verse 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now Mary simply proclaims, holy is his name. It's another very personal description for him. And holiness certainly means separated from all evil or sin or corruption. But even in a, in a broader sense, it refers to God as being absolutely unique. He's not like you and me. Chiefly in that there is no sin or corruption in him. Never has been, never will be. And that's why when Isaiah came into the presence of this Holy One, his response was not only awe of what he was seeing and experiencing, but his first words were, I am a man of unclean lips. So to be in the presence of this Holy God is to have your sin fully exposed, and that's never a pleasant experience for any of us. But as that sin is exposed, we realize we are a people who are in need of mercy, and that's exactly where Mary goes in this poem of praise. God is the merciful one. That is, verse 50, she says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And that word mercy has the idea of God showing an undeserved kindness or concern for those who are in serious need. That's Mary, that's you, that's me. Every one of us stands in need of mercy. But you know, if you, you can actually exclude yourself from God's mercy because look at verse 50 again. This mercy is reserved for those who fear him. But if you marginalize God or you dismiss him or say, I don't really believe in this God, well, then you're not positioned to receive this mercy. And the need of Mary's life is more than an opportunity to get out of Nazareth. Just like for some of you who've just said, man, if I could just get out of this community, get out of this school, get out of this home, get out of this marriage, mm, that might be a small help, but that's not the ultimate help. 
you need God's mercy. Jesus didn't come to put band-aids on our brokenness or to just improve our standard of living. He came in mercy to remove the sin that is destroying us from within and destroying this world from without to bring salvation. Let me go quickly to the final one. Look at verses 51 to 55. Mary concludes with these thoughts. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The final attribute that she sings over from the depths of her souls is this. God is the faithful one. Now, his supernatural power is evident here. Verses 51 and following, he's shown strength with his arm. Those are deeds that manifest miraculous power. This is not the kind of strength any one of us could could put on display this morning. And then she notices a few other things. But just for the sake of time, I want to go to this thought. He, he has been faithful in remembrance of his mercy. And you need to just focus on a couple of thoughts here. She mentions Abraham specifically. You know, Abraham lived almost 2,100 years before Mary. And she knows the promises that God made to Abraham. She apparently knows Genesis. And they would not have had chapter and verse denoted there, but she could take you back probably to a Genesis scroll and say, you know, I think it's early on, but God made promises to Abraham. And here she is 2,100 years later seeing God faithfully remember his mercy, and she's overwhelmed by it. We believe these events took place about 4 B.C. That was always curious to me, right? Because as a kid, I'm like, B.C. means before Christ, right? So how, 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 could we like, how could we mess up the calendar if Jesus was really born in 4 B.C.? Well, these are our best efforts and guesses. Let's not get hung up in those things. Those are man-made things. It's not a Bible issue. But Mary says he has helped his servant Israel. Helped is a term that means in a very physical way to take hold of. God made promises long ago and he's taking hold of the history of the world at this moment. Spoke to Abraham. And I'm sure that humanly speaking there were many in her day as there are many in our day saying, where's your God? I thought Jesus said he was going to return. Where is he? You know, looking at the calendar, we're probably closer than ever before, but what's 100 years to him? 2,100 years before Mary, he made promises, and he didn't walk away from them. It's not like his timeline got messed up, and he said, oh, I've been having problems. I'll get to you sooner or later. No, he was right on schedule. And you know what? He's right on schedule for the second coming. Are you ready for that? 
Because there were many in Mary's day who had abandoned all spirituality whatsoever and just taken matters into their own hands, who were basically saying, I'll be my own Savior, be my own Mighty One, even be my own Holy One, unique one. Uh, if I need mercy, I'll find it from within myself. Faithfulness, I can, I can make good of my word, but you can't. God is faithful to His word and to His people. Do you believe that? You know, you can open this book and look at the promises, and you can build your life on it. Everything from finding a true identity, where God says, you are my child, to the assurance that your sins are forgiven, when He says, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness even down to setting the course of your life where you could, like Paul, look at some of those Old Testament promises that, that assure us that people who've never been told about Jesus will hear and will understand. And if you read Romans 15, Paul pulls out a map, as it were, and says, well, I've been in Jerusalem all the way around Illyricum, but you know what? There's a, there's a group of people over here at the far western edge of the Mediterranean Sea who've never heard. I'm going there because of the promises so there's everything from the spiritual realities of our lives that the promises shape to the geography of our lives that the promises of God can shape. He's faithful. So to bring you back to where we were, this is some of what's loaded, supercharged, if you will, in a passage like 2 Corinthians 1.20 where the scripture tells all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And Mary is seeing that and responding and reciting or maybe even singing beautiful poetry of powerful truth in response to it. In the last moment, I just want you to think this through. Where, where does this leave you and me? You know, here's the reality we all need to come to terms with. What you know about God will translate into the way you live for God and the way you, you can measure. Do I really know these truths about God? Well, how are you living? I share with you how God's really been convicted in my heart that I've functionally, I mean, I know all kinds of truth about God, but functionally I'm acting as if I don't know God is my Father. And as I said, I've been living like an orphan, practically speaking. Well, if I don't, who will? I don't think about this, if I don't plan, if I don't prepare, if I don't fix, if I don't remedy, if I don't, if I don't, if I don't, oh, I'm just telling you, it's exhausting, and it's hard for other people living around me. That's how it works out specifically for me. What you know about God will translate in the way you live for God. So here's the glory of this. When you really come to terms with the fact that God is your Savior, oh, there's, there's peace that just begins to rule in your heart. You're like, I'm forgiven. Yeah, I'm a crummy human being. Please don't make me tell you all my sin, but it's forgiven. I'm at peace with God. Joy flows out of that. Because I don't have to save myself, and I dare not try. God does. How about mighty one? I was thinking about this. You know, when you begin to really get a handle on the fact that he is mighty, he's able to do everything that he's promised and purposed. That's where your faith really begins to grow. You and I don't grow our own faith just by saying, have more faith, have more faith, have more faith, have stronger faith, have, have stronger faith. 
No, you, you keep listening to God as he speaks his truth to you. You keep reading those stories saying, if he could do that for them, then he can do what I need. Faith and trust go together. Faith is what you believe. I think trust may be a little more of an active word. It's like, yeah, okay. I'm... He's holy. The holy one? Knowing that will generate a lot of humility and the right kind of fear. Yeah, I don't want to be ushered into the presence of God right now like Isaiah was in some respects because I feel like it would just crush me. Merciful? He loves to do favors. That, that begins to put your soul at rest. God, I need a favor. Every day. I mean, we need hundreds of favors on any given day, don't we? But God says, well, that's me. I'm merciful. I, I love to do favors. And that relieves your heart. And then finally, faithful. We may not see the second coming in our lifetime, but it's going to happen. We better live for it and prepare for it, work to that end, confidence and hope. You'll never generate hope within yourself. Hope doesn't come from a fat bank account. Hope doesn't come from perfect health. Hope doesn't come from having all of your earthly relationships in place. Hope is found in knowing God. So when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord... My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, and then continues through this beautiful poem. It is intended to not just grow your knowledge about him, but to grow your relationship with him so that you too, uh, you may never write a poem of praise to God, but you can at least take up the poetry of other people and praise him and live to that end. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for what you have done in the life of a very obscure teenage girl as we've looked at these women of the nativity we're struck by the fact that they are ordinary people like us people that the world would never have known except you the mighty God entered their lives in significant ways we're not asking that you would enter our lives that we might have global fame or that an eternal testimony would be written where we would be well known, but we are asking you to draw near because we are such needy, broken people. Our sin is great. Its impact on our world, our families, our own souls is, is devastating, but you are all of this and so much more. So come, Lord Jesus, and give to us all things that we are in need of and let these powerful truths shape our identity, shape our daily living, and ultimately bring you honor and glory so that the way we live, not just our words, would be a magnification of you, our God. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.